All right. Would one of the Zoom people want to open us in a word of prayer today? Heavenly Father, we give you glory and honor and praise because you are worthy. Lord, I pray that you would uh, guide Ray's teaching today, that you would direct our listening so that we would get out of today's lesson what it is you want us to take into our coming week so that we can live out your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. A lot of you or maybe some of you, maybe not a lot, are reading through the Bible in 2021. And if you're on schedule, you will have completed reading through all of the Old Testament historical books and are now in Isaiah. That's what uh, would be on schedule right now. One of the things that impressed me in my reading of the Old Testament just keeps reminding us of how human, how frail, how difficult life is in a lot of situations. And particularly amongst the Israelites, they seemed in the Old Testament, we have a record of failure after failure after failure. God does a miraculous work for them, parts the Red Sea, brings all these plagues on the Egyptians, Uh, opens up even the Jordan River when they're about to cross, gives them military victory. So God does all of these gracious acts on their behalf. But eventually things decline. And if you're at that spot in the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah is predicting the fall of the northern and the southern kingdom, essentially the fall of Israel. And it just shows the frailty of us, frailty of man, and we're made of the same stuff. I think we are without as much excuse as they are. In other words, we are, we are granted more grace, more enablement in the power of the Holy Spirit, but yet we still fall short. And one of the areas that we struggle with, everybody struggles with, with relationships. So... In the book of Romans, one of the special portions of the book of Romans, chapter 14, deals with primarily relationships. And he's dealing, as we've been seeing, with a particular area of relationships between what he describes is those that are weak in faith. And then in chapter 15, he identifies and uses the word those that are strong. And I think the implication is strong in faith. What he means by Those that are strong in faith, I think, in fact, the way I I understand it is that he's dealing with those that have a good grasp. They're not necessarily super mature necessarily, but they have a good grasp on Christian freedom. And the weak are those that struggle in areas primarily from their background where they're not so free. But either way, that causes conflict in the body of Christ with Uh, the differences between those that have a good grasp and those that don't. And we've seen already the first part of chapter 14, the emphasis of it deals with the relationship with both the strong and the weak. So he's dealing with believers at the Church of Rome, and we're in the portion that we call application, and you've seen this enough, so I'm not going to belabor it, but we have the last portion of application that deals with the area of Christian liberty. And it's a long section, actually a subsection, Christian liberty, chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. 
And that essentially ends the doctrinal portion or the teaching portion of the book of Romans. After chapter 15, verse 13, we have a long conclusion, a chapter and a half, essentially. So we're getting close to the end of our study of the book of Romans. Woohoo! That's because we're getting close to the end of our study in Romans. Woohoo! <laughs> in terms of the context of the passage we'll focus in on today, don't celebrate too soon. We, we still have a few more months. We'll see how long it takes. But I'm glad oh, you're rejoicing. Hmm? <laughs> By the way, the reason Connie's so happy is she's the one that suggested it. For those of you that are thinking that we're going too slow, I always blame Connie. So she always gets the blame. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. So the context. The context of the passage we're dealing with. Overall, this whole section... He's dealing with preventing these conflicts that I just described in particularly these questionable areas. In other words, there are some areas that the Bible doesn't definitively spell out. In other words, doesn't spell out what is right and what is wrong in specific areas. So they are somewhat questionable. And many of them relate to where we come from before we became believers. Some of the baggage that we carry into the Christian life. So this whole subsection deals with preventing these conflicts. And two major ways that we prevent these conflicts is, first of all, we accept one another right where one another's are, accepting of others with differing convictions. And when you have a church that's composed of people that have a variety of backgrounds, variety of ages, variety of experiences, Conflicts are inevitable, and when there are differences of these convictions that are questionable, we need to cut people a little bit of slack. Now, he's not dealing with those things that are crystal clear in Scripture. There are absolutes. There are Ten Commandments that are unchanging and, in fact, eternal, that are applicable not only to the nation of Israel, but are applicable even in the church age, the only exception is the observe the Sabbath. It is accepted and we have clear teaching. So there are clear absolutes. He's not dealing with those. He's dealing with the areas that are a little bit more questionable and primarily are dealing with things that come from our background. So we accept one another where we are. Some are further along. Some have a better grasp of the freedom we have in Christ. Some are still bound and still have a problem primarily with the conscience. And I think underlying this passage is those that are weak in faith are weak in terms of dealing with these issues in terms of their conscience. They're guilty. For example, if you came from a Jewish background, it would be difficult for you to, to eat pork. Somebody put pork chop in front of you, you, you'd have a hard time because you were raised in that culture and you were raised with the idea that the law prohibits it. And the law did, in fact, prohibit it, but now in Christ, everything has changed. But if you were Jewish, that would be a difficult thing, and you would even sometimes feel perhaps even guilty if you partook of a ham sandwich or a piece of bacon or anything related to pork. So those are the kinds of areas that he's dealing with. But a Jew that grows in his faith and recognizes other principles, other teaching in the Bible, recognize that Jesus declared all foods clean. Even the apostle Peter had a hard time when God himself, in a vision, commanded him to eat 
what was on this sheet that he saw in his vision because it had some of these foods that were prohibited. And Peter says no. And the Lord had to tell him three times before he kind of got the the message and got the point. So those are the kinds of things we're dealing with. So we accept one another right where they're at, letting them grow. In fact, giving them space to grow and not condemning them. Secondly, in the passage we're dealing with in chapter 14, 13 through 23, because of that, a second major thing that we need to accommodate is we need to restrain our liberty. In other words, we may be free to eat pork. We may be free to do things on a Sunday that others may not feel so free. But in some situations, particularly when we are amongst those that have these issues, we want to restrain our our freedom. And we do that for the benefit of those that don't have that same conviction that we do or don't have the same freedoms. So that's part of interacting with fellow believers. It's it's actually part of loving one another. And we've already had in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 passages dealing with loving with one another. So that's the essence of all of chapter 14 from 13 to the end of the chapter. And he's going to give give us some detail concerning the development of this idea of restraining our, our freedom. So just in outline form, we have application of Christian liberty, receiving different differing convictions. That's a different way of stating the same thing I just stated, receiving or reception or accepting. And then uh, restraint, 13 through 23, for edification. And now he gives us some exhortations. This passage is full of commands, full of imperatives. And when it's not using the imperative mood, it is phrased in such a way that it is at least an encouragement along certain lines. And I've got a whole list of them, and I'll review some of them, then we'll pick up after we... So first of all, we have the exhortation against stumbling blocks, chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. We looked at this verse already. I'm just giving it to review. But rather determine this. In other words, there's an alternative. So we have the first exhortation, don't judge convictions or individuals that have these convictions. I think he's dealing with both the weak and the strong. If you remember in the prior passage, he was talking about the weak judging the strong. In other words, they saw them doing things that they thought were prohibited and they were calling judgment down upon them. But in this passage, I think he's dealing with both because we can, uh, even the strong believer can, Uh, make conclusions or come to decisions concerning the weak as well. So don't judge convictions, but rather determine this. And and that one actually is another exhortation or you might even say command. And there's two things, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, this deals primarily with the the strong that He's going to explain what he means by the stumbling block. It's these areas that uh, others have these convictions. And we looked at that verse already, so I'm not going to get detail. Not to put obstacles, two things, or stumbling blocks in a brother's way. So we're dealing with relationships with brothers. And when the Bible uses brothers, it assumes that we recognize both, both uh, gender, men and women. So don't judge convictions. And then the second part of 13, don't cause harm. So I kind of bring the two words together with one, and that one is in the imperative mood. 
The other one's not in the imperative mood, but it's framed in terms of an exhortation. Grammatically, it's slightly different. And then we have 14. We looked at 14 as well. The issue of liberty. He's just reminding us again of some of the things that he brought out in uh, the first part of chapter 14. <laughs> and also reminding us of things that Jesus said and Paul said in other, in other passages. So verse, verse 14, notice he agrees with the strong, but just because the strong are right doesn't mean that they can exercise their freedom because not everyone is in place. So I know, and he uses the word oida, uh, knowing intuitively or knowing by revelation, you might even say, I know and I am convinced. So he has the conviction as well. In other words, he has the certainty of the following. And not only that, but he says, in the Lord Jesus. So this is probably by revelation, either direct and or reading from the Gospels, perhaps available to Paul. He, know, he says, and here's the statement, nothing is unclean in itself. Pork by itself is not unclean. Nothing wrong with it. The only reason it was prohibited is because God set it up that way to distinguish the children of Israel from the Gentiles, to separate them out. Inherently, pork is just as nutritious, as delicious, just as good as beef. Pardon me? Except bacon's better. <laughs> you know, actually, and Paul in Galatians, uh, several points through Galatians, he's making that point that you're under Peter, you're under the law, but not from under that. Right. Uh, and or, the purpose for that was teach you. Teach you certain things, <clears throat> certain principles. And probably the main principle is the principle of separation. Yes. Sanctification. Distinguishing his people from other people. But inherently, in the Old Testament, there was nothing wrong with pork. You cooked it well. And there's nothing wrong with pork. So there was nothing inherently wrong with these things. There's nothing inherently evil about doing things on the Sabbath also. That was another Jewish issue. And today, there's nothing inherently wrong with alcohol. That's kind of an issue in our culture, whether you should drink or whether you should not. And some come from a background that feel like it's a good thing. But inherently, there's nothing wrong with it. Now, everything, including good things we restrain in terms of excess, but that, that applies to everything, but that doesn't make it evil. And there's nothing that God has created. In fact, when he created all things, everything was very good. And remember, when he created things, he created grapes that ferment. And the whole process, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it, there's nothing inherently wrong. So even if your name is Noah? Pardon me? Even if your name is Noah? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was excess. <laughs> Uh, nothing is in unclean in itself. Now, he uses the word unclean. That's kind of the Jewish association with things that are prohibited. And the only reason they were unclean is because God set them up that way, but inherently there was nothing unclean. But the next part there, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, if it bothers your conscience because of that background, that makes it unclean because you're doing damage to your spiritual walk. If you're damaging your conscience, then that makes it unclean, but inherently in and of itself, it's not. So we saw verse 14, and now in 15, we have another exhortation. This is where we left off against damaging. So he's kind of stressing it from a different angle now. And in 15, 
For if because of your food, your brother is hurt. It's not that your food is inherently evil, but if it causes your brother to damage their conscience or or make a conclusion that they think, well, you're doing something wrong, you're doing damage. And actually the word literally there, and I've got a series of different words that we'll look at a little bit more carefully, and I've got the Greek words there, just for you Greek students, nupetai. Trans, uh, the New American Standard translates it hurt. I think it's a general term. It can be used in the sense of grieving, and in some context it has that, and some translators translate it using the idea of to grieve or to distress, or more broadly, just to hurt or damage in some way. It can use, be used in that sense of offending, hurting by offending. I like the New American Standard translation of hurt because it's a little bit more broad. It includes the idea of grieving. It includes the idea of offending in other areas as well. And then verse 15, for because of your food, your brother is hurt. You are no longer walking according to love. Now, he's not stressing by using the phraseology, loving one another and that thing, but that underlies this whole passage. He's already gone in detail, chapter 12, chapter 13, in the whole area of love. Underlying all of what we have in chapter 14 is we restrain our liberty for the benefit of others. That's an expression of love. So you are no longer walking according to love. Now, Paul frames it from the negative, but what he's doing here is just reminding us of the opposite. In other words, uh, we'll frame it as a positive and what's implied here is be walking in love. So in chapter 15, we have an encouragement. It's not a command, but from the negative, an encouragement to walk in love, more implied. Jeff. implies that we need to be aware of this. That's a good point. Jeff points out we need to be aware of weaknesses of those around us. And that comes about with interaction and relationship and fellowship, discernment, and just concern for one another. If you haven't noticed, I'm using the red to emphasize the negative here. In other words, like a stoplight, and then the green is the, the go sign. So walk in love, verse 15. And now we have a definite command. Do not destroy strong words. In fact, the stumbling block, that's a pretty strong word. The, the obstacle that we saw in verse 13, that's another strong word. And even stronger here, do not destroy with your food. Now, he's just using one example, but he's talking about all of these areas. It can include days. It can include other convictions that people may have. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died. Let me comment on the death of Christ that's referenced here. Uh, what he's saying if Christ went to the extent of dying on a cross, a gruesome crucifixion, and he did it on behalf of our brother or fellow believers, doesn't that mean that uh, we can do the simple thing? He's not calling us to go on a, get on a cross and die. He's just saying to restrain temporarily that freedom that we do in, ha in Christ have. And can't we do that little thing since Christ actually went to the full extent of dying? So I think that's the emphasis here. Now let's take a look at the word destroy as well. Sandy? In some cases, yeah. 
in some cases, I think uh, I think you need to be sensitive to every circumstance. I can think of a circumstance where you may have the freedom to have a glass of wine at a meal, and you've got guests, and you don't know everyone. And I think it'd be appropriate to ask: uh, Does anyone have a problem with with wine? I'd like to. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sensitivity. Yeah, sensitivity. It would have been Christmas of 1980. As an example. In Scotland, okay. a group of singles had gotten to in a house. And I had kind of decided in advance that I wasn't going to drink. I didn't care less. I take it. And as I'm sitting there and as people are arriving, everyone's bringing a bottle of wine. And I'm kind of looking around going, well, apparently these folks. So when it came time to hand out the glasses, said, yeah, I'll take a little. So I had a little bit just to kind of blend in. Right. The next day... Uh, it turns out there was some who was at the whole situation ah. because the individual came to me. I guess they had noticed that I had refrained until looking right. around. Right. Uh, but she was very young, little blonde Marine Corps gal. Very hard. I mean, she had Marine. She was <laughs> in her civilian clothes with, you know, razor creases. Right. Uh, very angry at the undisciplined nature of all the same because they were. Yeah. Yeah. So that that exact that exact example I've lived that. You remember uh, it vividly you, right now. Yeah. As you can see, it's how many decades has it been since eighty Christmas of eighty nine, and I still right. remember it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was terribly offended. The lack of wow. discipline making is a sin. And she probably had a major problem with the marine sailor. That might have been an issue too, but uh, <laughs> um, I think the issue is that she was a baby Christian, and for her it was about right. discipline and walking. She also believed that you had to, or was it something else? There was somebody else that had the thought to be a good Christian, you had to do at least one, one chapter of Proverbs, five chapters of Yeah. <laughs> Convictions. Yeah. Jeff, for those of you on Zoom that didn't hear him, he was giving a, an example from an experience he had where a young believer was offended. Same thing that we're talking about here. Let's take a look at this word destroy. And the reason I do this in this context, those that... Take the viewpoint that you can lose your salvation. This is one of the verses they, they might use, some cases have used, saying that he's talking about brothers here, remember? He's already mentioned that. And this is a strong word, destroy. In fact, let's take a look at this word, if I can get to it here. Destroy, apolumi, used 91 times, and in several contexts, it is used in the context of eternal destruction. I think last time I referred to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish. Apolumi, that's the word that is there. And it's talking about eternal perishing in that context. And there's other usages as well. So they look at that word and say, well, John 3.16, and they look at these other verses where it does, in fact, have that sense of an eternal destruction. And they say, well, here's an example of a verse where you can bring destruction to another believer. You can cause them to stumble to such an extent that they will. Lupitai? Lupitai. Lupitai. Just go with... L-U- L-U-P-E-I-T-A-I. There you go. L-Y-P-E-I. Connie's on the ball as you... <laughs> it's from the word lupeto. Say. Yes. The 91 times of Apolumi, is that in Romans or in the no, New Testament? No, in the New Testament. 91 times. 
it is used in a lot of different ways, just like most words. Remember, we, we talk about this a lot. Words are used in different ways in different <coughs> contexts. In fact, I've got lots of word studies that I do all the time. I've got one handy here for Apollumi. In fact, most of the time in the New Testament, it's used in terms of physical things. Talking about perishing in a storm, Luke 8.24, that's physical death in that case. Matthew 5.29-30, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to apolumi. You're not losing your salvation. You're not losing your eternal destiny. It is better for you to lose or to destroy one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow. Then verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than to your whole body. to go. So it's used in that physical sense. And the example I've got, Matthew 9, 17. Somebody want to look that one up? In fact, let me give you some other verses. Somebody look up Matthew 27, 20 for physically destroy. In fact, that verse that I gave you before is physically being destroyed in a storm and uh, the other see did I give you another passage what's that Revelation 9 Apollyon is the name of the destroyer of the planet yeah yeah it's and related that, to this and that's word. actually a title his name is destroyer. destroyer it's related to the same word yep and he destroys in many ways many ways some eternally and somebody got Matthew nine seventeen. that refers to Jesus Lord or nor do men put out and wineskins. Ruined. Okay, wineskins that are ruined. Same word. So it's not talking about eternal things. It's talking physically. In other words, physically ruined, physically destroyed. useless for Useless, exactly. And this is the nature of the way words are used. We do this ourselves. Physically destroyed. This is Jesus, Matthew 27, 20. Would somebody read that? Right. I have that. Sharon, go ahead. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. This is the word for to death. Yep, the word for put to death, apolumi. And that's physical death on a cross, physical death. And that other one I told you about, uh, perishing in a storm, same thing. And there's lots of usages in this physical, either of a person or some object. There's also, as I've said, we already quoted John 3.16. Somebody want to look up John 10.28. And while we're at it, let's look at the usage that we have here in uh, in Romans. I have John 10.28. Go ahead, Connie. John 10.28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Okay, there's an eternal security passage. They shall never perish perish. All right. And apolumi is there in that verse will never, well, will, the verb is will perish, but then would never before it or not. And then spiritual loss. And it looks like everywhere it refers to a believer, it could not, because of uh, the doctrine of eternal security, could not refer to eternal perishing. But it's used in other contexts, not a whole lot, but a few times, like in 1 Corinthians 8, 11, we already saw that verse, where he's also talking about brothers at Corinth, similar situation, dealing with these questionable issues. It's used in a similar way in the Romans passage, where you can do damage 
And it's a strong word. So you can do severe damage. In fact, the word destroy is used and it doesn't have the sense of eternal destruction. Somebody got 1 Corinthians 8.11. I have it. Go ahead. Uh, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Very similar to what we have in Romans. And it translates it here, ruined. In other words, you can ruin a Christian walk that has nothing to do with their eternal destiny, but it undermines and can throw them into a destructive path, you might say. You could almost say it devastates them. It devastates their conscience, good way of putting it. And that has ramifications that uh, undermine the Christian walk. So this is a serious thing. And some people are more sensitive. Some people are easily led astray. And the example that we can see very vividly, that somebody that may have overcome alcoholism, for example, uh, we can put a stumbling block by making them think, well, just one little drink won't hurt, but that throws mm. them back into a path of destruction. You can totally ruin their walk. No, I was screaming. There's no such thing as one potato chip. Yep. So, in this context, it doesn't have the sense of something physical or even a person physically destroyed, and certainly doesn't have the sense of eternal perishing. And by the way, there's other verses as well where it's used in this eternal sense. But it does have a strong sense in terms of some spiritual loss, some devastation spiritually. And that's in this context here, other contexts as well. So now we have another exhortation, another command, and this one is in the imperative mood as well. So this is a command. Don't destroy believers. So a serious warning that Paul gives us in the context. And then 14, 16 through 18, the issue of best things. And sometimes doing good things gets in the way of us doing better things or the best thing. And sometimes even good things in this context can sometimes even be evil things. So 14 through 16, let's take a look at those. Therefore, do not let what is good, what for you is a good thing, be spoken of as evil. And he's re referring to these, these areas of Christian liberty. In other words, all meats are good. A good pork chop, delicious. Bacon, Jeff says, he loves bacon. All right. Delicious. It's good. It's a good thing. Even a glass of wine, a fine wine, is a, is a good thing. Lots of things are good, but they become evil if they become a stumbling block. To a brother. So therefore do not let what is for you a good thing. Freedom in Christ is a good thing. One of the things I stressed last week, we don't lose our freedom in Christ, but we choose and we decide to limit our freedom if in fact it stands in the way. Of, and that's a choice that we make. We don't lose that freedom and it's a good thing. So Christian freedom is good. Bible in a Bible call. Anyway, we're stressing the wine that they had fermented and to make people. And I mean, they were something else. <coughs> they were stressing John it. Out yeah. Yeah. You and say that they mix it with water. So I'm thinking that the people at the wedding at Cana would disagree. That's right. <laughs> I would agree with you. <laughs> And not only that, oh, but talk about it. What I'm saying is that that itself, as you've been given 
possibly not altogether, not in, not incorrect, but not complete. You've internalized that. That could be Well, that's a whole, some churches have taken the position that goes against what Paul is saying here, against the position that all things are good in himself. They're not inherently evil, and they've classified alcohol in that category, so they have to stretch some of these passages to uh, teach the things that you're talking about. And I used to be a member of the and one of their key points was to be a member of the CA. Zero alcohol. You as a minister of your church, no one needs right. zero alcohol. Right. And that was the only point in their doctrinal statement that I had a problem uh, because I, I think I pointed out here's a passage. And we thought it was Peter, but it turned out to be Paul who was saying that there are people making regulations against things which should be taken with gratitude uh, right. and there are doctrines of demons. Yeah. And in fact, Paul instructs Timothy to take a little take wine. Take a little wine for your <clears throat> Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. and for those folks with stomach ailments, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So... Uh, that teaching that you just referred to kind of go is undermined by all of the passages that speak of drunkenness, which is prohibited, but that's excess in anything. I guess you can take vitamins to excess. I don't know, but <laughs> anything to excess, I think, is not good. Everything in moderation. Very good. Okay, so that's for hey, Jim? Just, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that this last week, uh, we listened uh, to uh, the last Sunday's service uh, of at uh, Shadow Mountain. Yes, uh, David Jeremiah's church, mm -hmm. and he was teaching on the miracles of John, and and he started with the uh, the the wedding feast. And uh, I apologize, I can't be real specific here about how he handled it, but I thought it was interesting that he handled it in a way so as to be careful not to create division in the in the body of Christ there in that church. Uh, so uh, I, I just, uh, I'll leave you with that thought. Okay. But uh, he didn't deny that it was real wine or anything like that, uh, but he didn't get off on some of the things that we might normally get off Right. onto whether it's right or wrong, uh, but uh, he handled it in such a way as to not create division in his own church, yeah. which I thought was interesting. And I think that's what we should attempt to do in all areas as well. In other words, I think he's practicing what uh, chapter 14 is instructing us to do yeah. uh, from the pulpit. And sometimes those that are up front in pulpits and positions of teaching need to be careful, present things. Yeah. So, so what about when my, uh, what is good for me is spoken of as evil, as in, I am playing the devil's advocate here, as in, I choose not to get vaccinated, and people tell me that I'm evil because I do not care about others, etc., etc. You have all mm -hmm. heard all of the arguments. Right. Well, is that the same type of thing? It can be, I think, but I, yeah, you don't you don't have to discuss it, and you can claim the HIPAA laws and plead. Uh, what's the no? Word? You can't. You cannot claim HIPAA because HIPAA is is that a medical professional cannot reveal your information to anyone without your permission. It has nothing to do with you telling anyone anyone anything else. One one suggestion I might offer on on that 
particular question is that uh, to tell the person, respond to the person, well, I, I'm sorry you feel that way, but that's my conscience. Yeah, that's good. It's a good way to Thanks, put it. Jim. Yeah, that was Jim. Yeah, that's very good. Because that's the issue here, the issue of conscience and convictions. And I don't think we need to hide from the convictions that we have, but we need to be careful in expressing them in ways that cause us to stumble. In a way, by the way, what you're, I'm for, I will never get a vaccine. I'm for that, who I don't sound so nasty, those that they, that Right. Right. And a lot of it is attitude that we have and the way that we express ourselves to fellow believers. And Connie, you're probably more than likely dealing with an unbeliever anyway, uh, but not necessarily. But uh, some of those issues come up in the unbelieving world, and they're going to be offended at everything. Right. They're going to be offended at Christ, especially. Okay. So we have another exhortation or encouragement, at least. Don't let good or the good things be evil. And we haven't, this is another imperative. This is another strong command in verse 16. So we have a lot of these. So far, most of them are red. In other words, the don'ts. But we'll have a couple of positive ones in the next few verses here. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. So now he's introducing the kingdom of God. Interestingly, this is the only place in the book of Romans that he refers to the kingdom of God. Now Paul refers to the kingdom and the kingdom of God in other passages. This is the only one in Romans, interestingly. We haven't seen it in all of the five years we've been in Romans. So we have another term here that we want to talk about, the kingdom, only here in Romans. And... Commentators are a little divided here, even the conservative Bible teachers, and I'm not going to be dogmatic in saying what I've concluded in this passage, but let's look at different ways. We would reject the amillennial view. This is one of the passages that the amillennialists will use and say Paul is talking about a present kingdom that exists now during the church age, using it here in the book of Romans in the context of believers and in the context of the church age. And this is a passage that they would use to say that the kingdom is here. There's not a future earthly kingdom. Kingdom is here. And by the way, amillennialism is probably the, the viewpoint of the majority of even genuine Christians today. It's hard to believe because we live a little bit of a sheltered life and we spend most of our times with Premillennialists. <laughs> Keep in mind, the, the Reformed Church generally is amillennial, and that's a significant part of Christianity. A lot of other evangelicals are amillennialists. Roman Catholicism, historically and to this day, has always been amillennial. Well, not always. So, amillennialism is alive and well amongst us broadly. And don't be surprised. In fact, when I was at Grace Church, there's some amillennialists at Grace Church. I just, I can't, can't wrap my mind. <clears throat> Except for the fact that they, they punt to tradition. I see nothing. Right. Now, I'm not saying a majority, but I've run into just a in couple. General. Yeah. Good. You see me some Caesarea, we can thank for that. Okay. This passage does not support that idea. In fact, there's so many other passages we could get into that uh, go against that idea. I just bring it up. 
because Paul mentions the word kingdom, so we have to understand what is he talking about in this context. There are many evangelical and very conservative believers that think this is another one of the references, and there's many references to that future millennial kingdom, and there's some support in this passage for that, a future millennial kingdom that Paul is just, they would say Paul is using it to uh, look forward to this future millennial kingdom. And if this is where we as believers are going to end up in this future millennial kingdom, our focus should not necessarily be on these days and foods and beef and pork and all these issues. In other words, we should need a different focus. In fact, he's going to give us an alternative viewpoint here of what the kingdom, the essence of But because of what he states, I take a different view. Somebody, Denise? Yeah. The context of what it seemed to me, I'll just say that the kingdom of God is happening now. Okay. That those who are are believers are in the kingdom of God right now. It's not a coming. It's not a a later. It's happening. We just need to be very careful how far we push this. Yes. Because we have been transferred into the kingdom of light, which means we are in the kingdom of darkness. But our task as kingdom citizens is to build the citizenry for the future reality when Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom. Yep. Very good. So So I think in in this context, and just to show that Paul seems to be using the word kingdom... In this present tense sense, he's not talking about amillennialism, so we want to be guard against that. But there is a sense in which God always rules, and the kingdom of God is always in operation. And God is always sovereign over all things. He never relinquishes rules. So I think Paul is using it in a broader, more general sense, not necessarily referring to that future so it's the general rule of God, just as you use that verse, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light, that's present. So there is a sense in which God rules in the hearts of believers today, and a sense in which that rulership, part of his kingdom, is in operation. Okay, does that make sense? So, go ahead, Connie. The one thing that is not making sense to me is because I cannot remember what amillennial means. Oh. Uh, so what, it, what is an amillennial kingdom? Good question. An amillennialist is one that says that the kingdom is now, in fact, all of the kingdom is now, and there's no future earthly Jewish millennial kingdom. Right. There's no future reign. Ezekiel 42, yeah, when Revelation talks about a thousand years, it's using it metaphorically for a long period of time, and we've already been 2,000 years. That's our millennialism. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a very prominent viewpoint. Well, all negates. In, in Greek, alpha, if you put an alpha before a word, it makes other words. It's like our un- you could say unmillennialism. <laughs> or non. Non, yeah. Unmillennial. So I don't see it as a, as a future millennial kingdom. I think we need a little bit more for Paul to be intending that. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 4.20. Just jot it down. We're running out of time here, so we won't look that one up. But I think he's using it in a similar sense. Now, Paul does use the word basilea. 
uh, and kingdom, the word kingdom, in reference to that future thousand-year earthly visible reign of Christ where Christ comes down and reigns on earth. That's the future millennial kingdom. Paul does use it, the word in that sense. But there's a couple of places like this one and probably 1 Corinthians 4.20 where he's speaking in terms of the general rule of God. In other words, God ruling present time amongst believers. You might even think in the hearts of believers, he rules. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our sovereign. He's our king right now. But he will in the future come and set foot on earth and reign in a millennial kingdom on earth that'll have economic aspects to it. It'll be in the land, include the land of Israel. It'll include Israel as the prominent nation. That's the future millennial kingdom. I don't think that's what we have in this passage. Now, some people from our camp take that view, so I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. For Jim uh, McGillivray, that's the view of Robbie Dean, for example. And, <laughs> that's the view of who? Robbie Dean. <laughs> oh, Robbie Dean. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Future oh, Mind Kingdom. You mean uh, the guy down in Houston? Oh. Guy down in Houston. Well, Houston. I, I wouldn't agree with Robbie Dean on that. I, uh, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. I, I had to put it together. I, I've heard of him as Dr. Robert Dean, and you call him Robbie. And I'm yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, no, it seems like to me what it's contrasting here is what's characteristic of uh, the kingdom as compared to the kind of uh, cultural issues that we're, we're dealing with in the present. Yeah, and I think the here, next phrase is... The context. Yes, exactly. The context and the next phrases, I think, supports that. All right. I, sorry to impugn the name of Robbie D. Monks, all of you. <laughs> one of the best, one of the best Bible teachers in the whole country. Let him speak for himself. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, verse seventeen: For the kingdom of God is not these temporal, earthly, physical, questionable things of eating and drinking, including drinking here. But what is the kingdom of God? The essence of it. And by the way, this is kind of a comprehensive statement of what the Christian life is all about, what uh, Christianity is all about. Righteousness, a right standing before God. Remember, this is the key term in all of the book of Romans, righteousness, a right standing before God and living a life that expresses that righteous. That's the heart of who we are. We are justified in Christ and have a right standing and peace. In other words, if you have God's righteousness, chapter 5, a product of that is peace. In other words, we, we're no longer enemies of God. We are part of the family of God, and we have not only a position of peace, but we have an experiential peace as well. And in fact, Paul describes that as a peace that uh, is beyond description, beyond our comprehension and understanding. So the answer Go ahead, yeah, Ray. Yes. You know, uh, it uh, it applies in the same way in the kingdom as it does now in this sense that even though when the kingdom starts, it starts with uh, all believers, there's non-believers and believers. So it, this only applies to believers, whether you're talking about people now or people in the kingdom. Exactly. As well. Right. In fact, we... We are experiencing what we might even call foretastes of the millennial kingdom. Uh, one of the characteristics of the millennial kingdom is 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we have a taste of that mm -hmm. in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the church age. So I think we have uh, kind of a foretaste of what the, the future millennial kingdom is like. But I think Paul is talking about us experience that here and now. So we have peace that uh, is beyond comprehension. And because of that, we have joy that produces a joy regardless of the circumstances. And this is in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit produces all these things within us. And we experience that here now. So because of the context and because of the following phrases here, I take the kingdom of God in this broader sense than referring to the millennial kingdom, but not and definitely not referring to the sense of the kingdom on earth today that the Amelians holds to. Does that make sense? Okay. Hey. Who was that? Me, Joe. Tony. Joe. Peace and joy are the fruit of the spirit. So is he referring to an experience or the fruit of the spirit or possibly both? Probably both, but more than likely the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, the peace, we have peace positionally. We have righteousness positionally, but I don't know of the concept of joy positionally. I think it's more of an experience and we can have peace as an experience as well, experiential. So I think it's the fruit of the Spirit here, or at least some elements of it. And this is the heart of what the kingdom is all about and will be the heart of the kingdom in the future, where righteousness will be prominent. And as a result of that, there will be universal peace that will also include peace amongst nations and amongst peoples and amongst individuals. And there's lots of passages in Isaiah that speak of great joy. Okay. Verse, verse 18, for he who in this way, in other words, in righteousness, in peace, in joy of the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit, for in this way serves Christ. If this is characteristic of who we are, characteristic of our life, if we do that, we are acceptable to God. In other words, you could even translate this pleasing to God. This is what God desires. Now, it's not a command, but it is an encouragement, and we are encouraged to please God. So we can add it to our list, and we'll make it a green one. In verse 18, he's encouraging serving. And the, the reason we are here and the essence of the kingdom is serving Christ. So we will serve him and are encouraged along these lines. And if we are concerned about brothers and their well-being, then this is what uh, helps us to not cause them to stumble and actually does the very opposite. So that's kind of the negative aspect. Beginning in verse 19, he's going to go take this a step further and look at it from a more positive perspective. And just for your own benefit here, the Greek word acceptable, eurestos, uh, goes back to 12.1, where he started this whole section, where we are well-pleasing to the Lord when we are not conforming to the world, but in fact, renewing our, our minds and are a living sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God, where he uses this same word a couple of times in 12.1. And not only that, it's going to have an impact, I think, in general, and I think it it. Uh, pertains to, to men in general, not just to fellow believers, but even the unbeliever will be pleasing to the unbeliever. 
the gospel offends, and sometimes because we are related to the gospel, the unbeliever is going to reject us and not always be approved. But if we are doing what is instructed here, the exhortation, this passage, we can expect that even the unbeliever is going to approve of us. And this word approved, we've encountered it in Romans as well, dokimas. This is the word that has approval after testing. In other words, it's like taking a metal and putting it through the fire. And now that metal is shown to be genuine. It's purified because it's gone through the heat, the, the testing. And now you have the reality of it. So approved in the sense that people see we are real, we are genuine, and we can take abuse. We can uh, grow from difficult situations. So it's dakimas, very commonly used in the New Testament, approved after testing. And this is in contrast to the passage in uh, 1416. Remember that passage? We already looked at it. Do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. That spoken of as evil is the same word for blasphemy. In other words, people blaspheme God because of how we live. The encouragement is to go against that. So we have a little contrast there. Well, that's a good place to stop for today because we get into another part of this paragraph that runs to the end of the chapter. We have more exhortations, so we're going to continue our list. But now it's more on the positive. 13 through 18 emphasizes we restrain our freedom in Christ in order not to cause a brother to have difficulty, to stumble, to have an obstacle, to do damage, and even destroy. And now he's going to look at it from the positive. In other words, when we do the same thing, now we can build up. We can edify, we can encourage, we can cause believers or encourage them to grow. And he starts off with an exhortation pick up next time. So then, this is what we are to pursue. Pursue the things which make for peace. That's the essence of the kingdom. So pursue it. And the building up of one another. So the idea of pursuing Strong word. We'll look at that word next. Get to this next slide. Pursue peace. Okay. Any comments? Further comments? No. Hi, it's Janie. Janie, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, I was thinking um, from the viewpoint of the so-called weaker believer, you know, um, they can be filled with the Holy Spirit, even yes. though they're, you know, if they're ignorant of certain truths, or you know. And second of all, sometimes things are better left up to the pastor teacher then you know a friendship <laughs> you know they're going to take it differently the passages and so forth and that's all because okay. i know i've rushed against the uh, some you know guys against drinking at all and uh being in some baptist circles lately you know the anathema any you know one drink leads to destruction a la proverbs yeah, but those, those, those are the circumstances yeah. Yeah. where if we are free in those areas, then uh, we limit ourselves for the benefit of, you mentioned, the Baptists. Yeah, well, there's all sorts of them, you know, independent too, but yeah, you never know quite until you get around certain people, what they believe, so yeah. um, praise God. But, um, yep. And then right. I with a Catholic lady at lunch, 
she's born again. You know, I'm not going to straighten her out on her whole theology yet, you know, yet. <laughs> anyway, all right. And thank you so much. Yep. Okay. Any other comments? Connie, you said that uh, we're praying for the new fellows or the Cordis is still with us. Yes, they are. Zoom. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a report or an update on uh, your relatives? Yeah. Um, you know, if you haven't been a missionary overseas, you probably are unaware of the fact that something like getting your driver's license can be a two-year ordeal. Last year, he came and he tried very hard, Matthew did, to get his his driver's license and to have all the paperwork that is required right now. So um, we're doing it again. So if you would just pray that the Social Security um, would uh, issue a correct card and that he just could get his license. Like I said, he tried last year. He's trying this year. Um, but the other thing would be just continue to pray for their, their ministry. They are continuing to do that um, online. Um, they are currently in California enjoying the heck out of their three grandkids and Susanna and Zach. Um, so just really glad about that. They're their plans to leave for Australia would be August 11th. That's a big prayer request because um, last year when they tried to leave, it took them three tries. It extended to three months before they got to go home. So hopefully um, it will not be a problem. I had my, um, my niece, Lena. This is Lena Ledger. This is Tom and Lori's daughter. She has been trying for a year and a half to get back into Israel so she can continue to serve the Lord from there. If all goes well and my application is accepted, I'll be flying back to Israel about two weeks. Please pray for me and that the Lord would grant me favor to return. Like I said, she's waited on the Lord for a year and a half, so I'm just asking God's mercy on her and that these plans would, would be following through because she really desires to be in, in Israel and serve the Lord there. Okay, we, we need, to, need to pray about it. We need it. to pray. Yeah. Uh, while we got Lana here, Lana's been encouraging me to send you all little information on that camp that we prayed about earlier in the summer. And since she's here, do you want to give a little report on that camp and your friend that uh, you're encouraging, Lana? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. My English is a second language. Please forgive me if, uh, you know, you have to... Um, <coughs> kind of uh, guess certain thing but the whole point with that uh, um, uh, that uh, family and one of the uh, person who is in uh, this big team for the team challenge uh, working in, in Ukraine um, a gentleman who actually I don't know Ray did you have a chance to send people just and whole uh, his testimony? Not Remember yet. Remember I sent you? Not yet. In I've been English? out of town and had a lot of things, but I'll... Uh, this, that's okay. That's this, okay. This anyway, um, he actually was uh, also having a lot of problem in the past and have a drug addict and alcoholic, but then God touched his life and his heart, and now he's serving more than 10 years at this uh, organization, and particularly he is working with a teenagers and young adults in at Ukraine and the, recently I know some um, a little bit ago he had two camps uh, one of them a big one and uh, um, another one a little bit smaller they go travel to a different location in the Ukraine 
and just uh, uh, have people together and uh, have uh, groups and, you know, teaching uh, some um, Bibles and uh, just giving them help. And, um, and then, of course, they do have a very amazing stories about and uh, uh, they work uh, sometimes so hard, like preparing everything because um, in their area, it's uh, more challenging because he practically like manage everything um, by himself. And then he has a little bit help, but it's a, a huge amount of work to be able to deal with 200 to 300 people, you know, and uh, um, my prayer request would be for his actual health, because after this much uh, uh, work and uh, they walk everywhere there, they hardly have a car just to the location and everywhere they have to actually walk a lot of distance and a lot of, uh, um, you know, spend energy. And he had very challenging um, problems with his uh, uh, legs and sometimes it doesn't work actually. You know, he has to just uh, just take time and he physically cannot w walk sometimes. But it go on and off and place when they get together and you can see, you know, um, uh, you can see, you can tell by look, you know, those those people look different than on um, drugs or actually on alcohol. And uh, it, I mean, I think it's uh, just a lot of, lot of things. Uh, but he is, I'm very impressed uh, what happened. Beautiful wife, um, two kids and um, just, uh, uh, I mean, I always impressed when I see how much energy or effort or just um, that uh, what driven inside movement he has just it's just he cares so much about those young adults and then also have um, ministry like a coffee house and call coffee a coffee house and then meet them and I have they talk to them and then try to connect with the family and uh, just to do a lot of, lot of work. But yeah, those camps is amazing and they have a tons of story and we take a lot of time by <laughs> hear about God and their life, life will change over time. And um, yeah, it's, it's very, very powerful right now in Ukraine. And, but that's yep. all. That's yep. all I, okay. I wanted to say. Keep Lana's Lana, friend. What, what is Give give the name. I, I can never remember yes. it. Your friend's name. Uh, Gennady. The... Okay, pray for him and the whole ministry. And as Sharon will tell you, ministry in foreign countries is difficult. It's hard. There's lots of things that we take for granted that are difficult on the mission. All that in mind, Newfells, the things that Karen shared. And just a quick thing. I mentioned it on the email. I talked to, or I saw Phyllis, and I forgot to ask her, but I followed up on uh, the uh, orphans are stranded in Hong Kong. The father is not cooperating, so it's just to keep praying for them. So let's do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift before you these needs, um, uh, geographic all over the place, Lord, um, between Hong Kong and Ukraine and California and New Mexico and Australia 
Father God, you are not bound by geography. You are not bound by time. You are not bound by any of the constructs that we find ourselves bound by. And we thank you for that, Lord, that you are bigger than each one of these situations. Um, Lord, I pray for Gennady in uh, Ukraine and that you would not only for the camps that he's running, but for his own health, his own physical strength, that you would continue to strengthen him uh, for that to which you've called him, um, that you would grant uh, both Lena and Matt favor in the eyes of the powers that be to grant visas and driver's licenses and um, things like that, Father Asking for favor from the Social Security Administration seems really bizarre. But, Lord, the favor we seek is yours. It's not SSAs. It is yours um, that Social Security would get Matthew a correct card. Um, I also want to continue to pray for Mariana, uh, <clears throat> Mary Lee's cousin, who called her in hysterics today, wanting to be let out of the rehab hospital. Father God, that you would... Show her, touch her, uh, give her your peace uh, to stop the hysterics. Father, that you would teach the lesson that you want to teach to this father in Hong Kong uh, of these children who have a, a family who would like to adopt them, but he is being uncooperative, Father God, that you would teach him the lessons that he needs to learn. Um, we know that you love these children. We know that you have their best at heart, and I pray that you would bring it about in Jesus' name.